Hey, it's Stephen Carter from the Strategist Podcast. We are beginning a five days of strategists thing where over the next couple of days or four days, or you know us, we're not going to really stick to it. Uh, you get an episode from our Patreon feed. Each of us has picked a favorite. I've chosen our August 4th, 2022 episode called Choosing Leaders. If you like what you hear, subscribe at strategistpatreon.com. If you don't like what you hear, subscribe your enemies to strategistpatreon.com. It's only $6 a month to access Patreon-exclusive episodes, usually one a week, unless we can't find Zane or Annalise, and sometimes Corey and I just record on our own. It's $10 a month if you want to get the deep archives, every past episodes, hundreds, hundreds of episodes that are completely out of date, um, basically whatever we did that wasn't under the Zoom exclusive um, you could probably write this off. This could be a write-off because uh, we don't know anything about taxes. So pick your episode. Uh, listen to August 4th, 2022, Choosing Leaders. Uh, get it done. This is a Strategist special episode. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Guys, we're producing the content, and we're producing it for our friends of Patreon. Uh, which, by the way, now that I say it like that, Friends of Patreon sounds yeah, like some galactic no. universe that, or some cult, cult that we're part of. I think it should be a cult. Yeah. <laughs> Friends of Patreon sounds like a cult. I do feel uh, like Corey is the cult leader. Um, he's <laughs> he's definitely got David Cornish. Cornish is what you're yeah. thinking of. That's a really topical reference. Wow. Congratulations. That's like yeah. Someone's watched definitely not a Netflix documentary. But what a, a story. VHS, <laughs> what VHS a... documentary on cults. I like that, Carter. Yeah, I mean. Carter, there's so many cult documentaries out on Netflix right now. And you Jim Jones. Your reference. Jim Jones is the one I should have gone with. Yeah, even yeah. better. Let's really, go back really to the 70s. Drag something back from my childhood. Uh, as the friends of Patreon, yeah. uh, we, Corey, we want to talk about how, how we vote. Uh, listen, in, in previous episodes, we have talked about the conservative leadership race here. We've talked about the UCP leadership race. We flirted ever so slightly with talking about, at least not this round, but previous rounds, because it happens every two years, how the conservatives in the UK vote. Right? <laughs> and in fact, if, if you're not aware, they're doing it right now. Uh, again, uh, they're they're selecting a, another leader to replace Boris Johnson, but worry not because Boris Johnson says he may also want to get in on that. That's another thing. That's a totally <laughs> that's a totally different thing that I can spend two hours on. We've also talked about uh, in in our uh, on the strategist, but also in our in our sister podcasts, which we uh, have started and then uh, uh, kind of um, let crumble, kind of like American democracy itself. Yeah. Um, we've talked about how American presidents are elected. So I want to talk today about how. V- how we ultimately how we vote how we allow certain people how we to choose vote, leaders how we choose leaders who is able to vote to select leaders and specifically who's able to select these leaders in political party apparatus mm-hmm. is it members is it the general public is it delegated Corey, give me a few others is it caucus uh is it you know it, there's so many different options um carter looking at the playing field in 2022 when you see the multitude of ways that the political parties have in terms of how we choose leaders, do you have a favorite yourself, top line? Like, is there a particular way and who should be able to vote that you like the best? Yeah, I, I prefer uh, a wide open party system to select delegates. Um, I think that the delegated process uh, serves the party best because it sends your top your top people to um, into uh, into the convention to actually spend time together 
And at the convention, they connect, they build relationships. Corey, I'm sure, has been to different party events. Uh, we've all been to different party events where those party events are the stalwarts. And it also creates an automatic healing period, right? We're seeing so many 5149s, right? So many 5248s, uh, really small victories, Um Corey talked about it uh, in our last part or in, in, in our podcast with the six nines after the decimal point, um, talking about how, uh, you know, Pierre Polyev may want to be pushing really hard to get a big number, right, to hold the party together to show that he's got the victory. You know, yeah. that that type of thing uh, is, is required because there is no immediate healing process. There's no ability to take the losing team uh, for a drink, to to spend time together, to, to spend time, uh, you know, talking about the common goals and tom- common realities. Instead, you just have this one member, one vote. You're still at home. No one calls you afterwards and, and tells you how important you are to the party. You're just gone. And you don't care anymore because there's so many members. The, the uh, CPC just released that they have 678,000 members that will be eligible to vote in this process. 678,000 people who won't be getting a telephone call after the process. Um, they don't matter. Individually, they do not matter. Collectively, they matter a lot. Corey, um, before I ask you for yours, get me get me the the index of types of okay. So I've of of, of ways that people can vote or political parties have selected to vote for leader. We've got the wide open, right? So anyone can vote, purchase a membership, show up, yeah, right? Well, not even necessarily purchase a membership. Okay. You have the U.S. primary system, for Great example, example, where you can just show up. Somebody just shows up, and you know, there's variants of that from anybody can show up, which we'd call an open primary, to a closed primary where you've got to be on a list and you've got to be a member of the political party. Not really a member, but yeah. like a registered Democrat you'll hear in the States, a registered Republican. Which, by the way, in the States, does that mean, do you know if that means any financial transaction with the party? No. Is register- it doesn't. It doesn't, right? No. Okay, yeah. No, yeah. you can change your registration in, in states that have registration like that, and I think it's fallen somewhat out of favor, though. You know, these things are always yeah. shifting. yeah. But um, in states, usually you can just change your registration every so often, and there might be kind of a period. But the idea is you can just say, like, yeah, I'm a Democrat yeah. now, yeah. right? Yeah. And maybe next election, you're like, you know what? I think I'm a libertarian. And there are a lot of political parties um, everywhere, but certainly in the United States as well. So you can you can register for some crazy fringe third party, too, along the way. And, and then there's these these big lists of, of who's registered how. So that's that's kind of the most extreme version. Anybody can vote or anybody who puts their hand up and says, I am, gets to vote. And there's no filter by the party. Yeah. It's sort of handled by the state elections boards. Um, the next version out is just, you know, just to simplify things would be like the caucus where you do have to be a member of the party and you show up and you caucus together. Yep. So when people are talking about caucus states and you'll recall in 2016, I suppose, when Bernie Sanders was doing so well with the caucus, it was because he could actually get members to show up and hang out and go through an excruciating process. Several hours in a community association hall or some gym, you know, yeah. somewhere. And that's really a delegated that that is the contest that Stephen Carter is talking about. Yeah. It, you know, it's it's the American supersized version, but the idea is you're electing delegates who in turn maybe elect delegates who in turn go to the state convention, who in turn choose their delegates for president, right? So that's that's kind of the the American version. If we're going on a spectrum, the Canadian version would be the next one up, mm. right? which is the members uh in a delegated convention would uh usually in person or like at a voting place or multiple voting places, get together and cast a ballot for who they want to send as a delegate to the convention. And much more direct than the American one. The American one is filtered through state conventions and all of that. 
Um, and then as you go further afield, you get contests. Uh, well, maybe this is not, this is a weird, I've broken this spectrum. Well, I don't even know what the fuck this is yeah. anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because I've skipped it... over one member, one vote, which I think would be in between there. But you've got one member, one vote, which uh, allows anybody to just buy a membership and vote right, remotely. Right, right. There's variants of that too, where it's just an instant roll up or there's actually rounds of voting, which is Stephen will be yeah. familiar with because he's run elections like that. And then, you know, in the more extreme gatekeeping versions, um, and it's, it's a spectrum, you've got more delegated conventions where the delegates are more handpicked. You know, it mm. might be the party bosses. It might be the, in, in the Canadian context, the presidents of party associations, the people on the executive. And their power, it's not like delegated conventions disappeared overnight. Like their power got diluted. You had more and more delegates elected that would go with the party bosses to these conventions. And then the most extreme version is like the caucus chooses the leader. You you are the leader of the caucus, so the caucus gets to pick who you are. And there's there's a lot of versions in between. You know, the French do a weird thing. Yeah. The, the UK does a combo thing where you've got to have like a caucus filter. Um, yeah. you know, the UK one's a strong one. It's like the top two candidates from caucus go for it. The Labour one is you need at least 10% support of uh, the caucus in order to move forward. To go to the membership, right? Yeah. yeah. And like there's no shortage of ways to choose leaders. Uh, and often we find that we'll oscillate between them when the weaknesses of one become too much to bear and then, you know, the strengths become taken for granted. So so with that being said, Carter, I'm going to come to you in a sec. Corey, do you have a favorite that you particularly favor? And, and I want to get into your last comment, too, in a second, right, which is one of the reasons we even at least I was interested in this topic when you guys brought it up as something to do an episode and is because we've been railing on a bit around one member, one vote, especially here in Alberta, which lets you exploit a system, find a fringe of a fringe and and win based on that. But is there a favorite you like, Carter? You've kind of chosen that that delegated model with the healing and the and the folks coming together, physical locale, kind of filtering up. Is there something you like, Corey, from like a personal bias or personal preference perspective? You know, I've been thinking about this since we sort of decided we're going to talk about the topic. And I think the answer is no. I, I think mm. that reality is it's ever shifting. And if you asked me 10 years ago, my answer would be different than if you asked me today. And not because I've, I mean, I've changed as a person, but I'm saying if you put present me in a time machine back 10 years, yep. I might suggest a different system than right now. And where I think these systems run into trouble is people try to create the purest versions of yeah. them in, instead of trying to create like practical versions of them that that deal with the downsides where all of a sudden it's like, yes, we want you know, party democracy. We like the idea of more parties being involved, but maybe we shouldn't go so overboard that it's instant members are able to determine the entire party. Or yes, we like delegated conventions. We like the things Stephen Carter talked about in terms of being able to, to you know, have the beer afterwards and bring the party together and have a, a more manageable group. But maybe we shouldn't create these gates where all of a sudden it's an entirely elite exercise that seems removed from the general population. And, and, you know, that's something that you got to calibrate over time. Uh, the system you could put in today may resolve today's problems, but new problems will arise. It's why we're always changing election mm -hmm. laws, too. Like, is a fluid environment. And I think people would do better than rather saying, like, I believe in this system to the death. It's, well, I'm going to react to the situation and how it's evolving. And I'm just going to keep moving with the flow here and try to, to keep some principles in mind, you know, become more principles based than rules based. Like, what are we trying to get out of a party election? We're trying to involve the members. We're trying to make sure that we're palatable to all Canadians, wh whatever your principles may be, and then adjust your party mechanisms 
uh, in, to follow. Carter, jump on this. And I also want to pick up, if you don't right now, this pure versus practical frame Corey's put on the table, but jump in on here. Well, I just want to jump into that because every every system has an unintended consequence, right? Every system has an unintended co- This is one of the reasons that we rail against proportional representation. Or, you know, why did we why did we record that special episode, uh, you know, in the last run of, of, of fantastic episodes? Um, well, we, re- we recorded that because we tried to, we're trying to explain the unintended consequence. I know the unintended consequence of the delegated system. It does favor the elites. It favors the people in the party already. Um, but if you were to marry a one member, one vote delegated system with a, with a, uh, you know, so you have one member, one vote at the constituency level to select all the delegates from the constituency. What you're essentially doing is creating a modified points system. And then instead of just having the modified points rally up, you're actually sending delegates. It's the same as the Electoral College in the United States, which we sometimes mm-hmm. forget mm-hmm. is a real thing. You're actually sending, you know, the Electoral College members to to Washington, D.C. to cast their ballots. We we learned that in 2020. Uh, you know, <laughs> right. Um, but the, well, they don't go to D.C. They they meet in their oh, state sorry, capital and sorry. they certify. Yeah, sorry, my, but, my, yeah. but it's more fun to go to to go to DC. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, okay, the, the, the point is that everything has an unintended consequence. And the, the question is, is that unintended consequence better or worse? Right. I, um, the caucus themselves tend to, to force moderation because the caucus wants to get reelected, right? The, the, the members uh, tend to move towards, uh, I, you know, their ideological purity. It's so, funny you say that. that. That's exactly, and I'll interrupt you in a second, with like the live wire example of what's happening in the UK right now. Rishi Sunak, the more moderate sort of candidate, the former chancellor in the UK, has m- the mo- more caucus support. Liz Truss uh, has more member support, at least in, as it relates to polling and where she's kind of standing in, in terms of members. He's the more moderate. He's like, I can beat Labour. And she's the I'm the purest version, not dissimilar, perhaps to what's happening here with with Jean Charest and, and Pierre Polyevre in, in some ways, despite, you know, the fact that Pierre's also got the, I think the better example. The better example is actually the UCP. Travis Taves has 30 plus endorsements of caucus. Great members, example. And right. and uh, Danielle Smith is is just raking in the memberships. Uh, so they say, um, you know, uh, <laughs> this is this is the but, the challenge that we're faced with is is that there is an unintended consequence from the choice that has been made because you've chosen one member, one vote. It has in its own way perverted the outcome. Corey, jump in on here. But I've got a question I want to I want to see in both of your minds, which is. How should we be asking this question? Like fundamentally, if you're listening to this right now, um, because often the way it is covered is which of these systems is the most democratic? And is that the right, right. question we should be asking? Because often we'll hear things like, I'm going to insert an example. Oh, my goodness. Like the UCP are about to go elect a new leader, which will become premier with only 2% of the population. Or in the UK, the conservatives are going to select a new prime minister with a membership pool of 160,000 in a country of, what, 50, 60 million, something in that range? So, Corey, like, what is the question and how should we be viewing this? Is it purely what's the most democratic system and then we try to make it practical versus pure? I mean, that's so fascinating frame yeah. that you've just thrown yeah. at me here because I'll tell you one thing is like what do you mean by democratic you mean party democracy it's do you a great mean question. general public is democratic just the existing members does democratic include potential members I'll say when it gets covered in the broader media landscape it's usually about general public versus the sliver of people selecting a new leader right well but like the reality is even when you're trying to create a system 
being democratic within your party might not be the same as being democratic within your public. You know, you're Fair not enough. necessarily uh, you're reflecting the will. And uh, the idea of these instant members, I think, is part of what's kind of gotten people upset in, in various contexts here. Yeah. So it's not really clear to me that, like, even if we're just going to be simple about the word democracy, that that it's obvious what democratic means. Because there, there is a case to be made that you lock the membership as soon as there's a vote. Basically, if you weren't on the boat, that's the membership anyways. That's democracy because those are the people who are truly members of the party. Everything else is just a sales drive, right? But beyond that, we tend to think of the word democratic not just as mob rule. Right? Mm-hmm. There's the mm-hmm. balances, there's checks in it. There's this idea that you want to appeal to a lot of people and consider the interests of a lot of regions. So if you're talking about a leadership vote, maybe maybe mob rule democracy, one member, one vote is anybody can come in and many people would see that as democratic. Uh, maybe another person would see it only democratic if those points are weighted by region. So you're making sure you're getting voices in rural areas as well and, and they're being heard. And of course... That somewhat reflects our actual system. We create ridings and we say, this is worth one MP. Mm -hmm. Even if the turnout in that riding is 10% and the turnout of the riding next door is 80%, they don't get eight times as many MPs just because they've got 80% turnout. We we sort of acknowledge that that representation doesn't necessarily require voting. You you, you can represent people uh, from a region even if those people didn't show up for you. So, you know, there's there's a lot of questions there. But Zane, to your, to your point, you've totally derailed me from like almost what I was going to say in response to Carter's here. But I think you've asked a good question. Parties should do the work of defining that and saying, what are we trying to get done with our leadership? Are we trying to create policy that will resonate with all Albertans? Are we trying to have a system that is going to get the most motivated volunteers and be really intentional about that and then sort of track their leadership over time? Now, the big problem is you define those principles and the minute you do, people are going to start trying to game the systems regardless because some people will do better in one system versus another. Mm-hmm. You know, some reward intensity, some reward moderation, and people will fight over the levers of the party in order to dictate what kind of system it is. And Carter and I have said this a lot. You choose the system, you choose the leader. Like, there, the I imagine it was a caucus vote for the UCP. Travis Daniel Smith wouldn't even be in the conversation. True, should be. It would be that's done. A great point. It would be. It would be over. Right. That's a legitimate system, but they've made a different choice along the way here. Carter, a similar question: Like, is the argument that X percentage of the population, where X denotes a very small percentage of the overall population, is now going to select the next insert blank premier, prime minister, whatever? Is that a is that a lazy argument? Is it an erroneous argument? Like, how do you, when you hear that um, as a criticism of voting systems, plural, like, how do you react to that? I react to that by thinking we need to teach social studies in schools again. And we need to, I think there's two courses that every reporter needs to take. Um, one is social studies. How do people actually get elected in this fucking country? Because um, they have no clue. And the second is statistical analysis so they can understand the polls that they're reporting um, because they don't understand those. But let's go back to the first one. We can we can deal with the second one in a different special episode. But the the, the, <laughs> the first one is, you know what? We didn't choose in the general election. We didn't choose who the prime minister was going to be. I chose who my local representative was going to be. And that's it, because all we actually elect is the individual representative. And then it turns out that Justin Trudeau was selected by, you know, he was not selected by 15 million Canadians to become the the prime minister. He was selected by a small group of people to lead a party and the party leader 
by virtue of the M- members of parliament choosing to vote with that person and and establish a government with that person as the first minister that person is in charge that is the system yeah. and 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 that you know we we have to actually separate the leader of the party, the process by which we choose the leader of the party, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the leader of the government, which is actually chosen in the legislature. Yes, it is a de facto, we expect it's going to be the leader of, leader the, party, of the party, yeah. but it is actually a different process that is governed in a different way in the legislatures. This is not just some sort of willy-nilly thing where, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Danielle Smith is going to be premier. Yes, she will be premier. Maybe. Imagine a situation where Danielle Smith is elected by the UCP membership to become the leader. And she then fractures off enough members of MLAs in in Alberta that those MLAs no longer support her in the House, in the legislature. She would not be premier come October 31st, right? She would not be sworn, you know, she, if she can't form a government, your mother-in-law is going to have to make a really tough decision, right? <laughs> it means that generally everyone's mother's in law Everyone's mother's in law have to make really yeah. difficult decisions. And that's, that is... Um, that's the beauty of the system. She does not necessarily become the, 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 the premier. She becomes the leader of the UCP. Whether those MLAs choose to stay members of the UCP is up to mm. them as individuals. That's an interesting so that's, Corey, jump in here. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Uh, they are separate roles. And we, we've seen that manifest in a couple of different ways, including like right now to continue in Alberta. Jason Kenney has resigned as leader of the UCP. He's no longer leader of the UCP. He's still premier of our province because they are separate jobs, right? Or maybe he's interim leader. I can't remember how that shit baked down. But the point is, they are separate jobs. Um, Carter, you said something really interesting that I think I want to jump on here, uh, which was the idea that uh, the prime minister is actually chosen by the MPs. And, and it, you know, that's that's where it comes through. There is an argument to be made that the most democratic might be the caucus because it is then being decided by MPs who are elected by the broadest group possible. So while it's intermediated by one, everybody's involved in that. Or maybe some version that's like the, the MPs or the past candidates, which is like a little shakier because obviously they're not mm-hmm. elected by as many people. Uh, but Alda just sort of underlined the point. These things are not as cut and dry as sometimes people try to make them out to be. And, and you know, I think that in general, people should be very leery of like the very absolute statements about only this can be a reflection of democracy. Yeah, right. The hypocrisy in political parties is massive. Um, let's start with the obvious. They all use instant runoff for their leadership contests, but God forbid we use instant runoff in general yeah, elections. That'd be you know, there's, the, yeah, there's some sort of magic is at the minute we go in the, you know, they're worried about all of a sudden candidates splitting in funny ways. And then there's like a, you know, there's a, a like an extremist candidate with 20% of the vote who wins. But you, apparently that's not a problem in a general or, or you know, they're not so fussed because yeah. they may be the extremist in that case. But, you know, there is no, you know, there there is no perfect system. And and the the bleed between these systems is the other thing I really want to underline. Uh, because they do have some sort of fundamental mechanisms underneath them that that are not so different. Like when we talk about the delegated system, I mean, I was, I've, I've been to delegated conventions, and the last delegated convention I was at was in 2006 in Montreal for the Liberal Party of Canada. I was elected as a delegate in Calgary Centre. It was uh, hotly contested because it was during a leadership contest, right? I think there were 14 delegates elected, 
Um, and you had to go in with a fairly complex ballot where you chose the leadership candidate you wanted on one side, mm-hmm. and then the delegates you wanted to send on the other. And basically, and, and sorry, this happened went, at the like the riding level, correct? This at the riding level. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. you went to a, a building. At this point, it was like the Liberal Party of Canada in Alberta office in you know on McLeod Trail, I can recall. And um, so you you voted for your leadership candidate, and that sort of determined the distribution of delegates. And then it went down based on the uh, the list. And there were certain demographic criteria to hit and all of that. Super complicated. But if you want to get simple about it, who had the most people show up and vote for them? And so it was like, in a way, an intermediated one member, one vote. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had to go out and hustle and sell memberships and convince my friends to buy liberal memberships and vote for me. So that you, and then they you sh- could be a delegate. So yeah. that I could yeah. be a delegate, right? And so, you know, the, it, it's not as though the delegate system was so pure, I guess, is the point I want to make. There were a lot of instant liberals, people who just showed up to vote in that one election and then fucked off and were never seen again. But, you know, it, it you know, the to Carter's first point, when it was all done, when I was elected, you know, I called them, I thanked them all. Mm-hmm. You did the things you're going to do, stuff that doesn't happen in a one member, one vote. And you try to, you try to create these connections. But the bleed between these all is significant, is the point that I want to underline. Because Carter, the, the relationships in. are owned at the local level as well, right? The, the, the relationships that are owned in a one member, one vote are owned by the leadership candidates that are selling the memberships. And they are owned by the party. They are not owned by the, the, the constituency association, which is supposed to be the fundamental building block for parties and for, um, for governance, right? Like the, 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 CA, the stronger your CA is, the stronger your community constituency association is, the stronger your party is. And by creating a process that builds really strong CAs, uh, you are building the ability to win elections in areas that you didn't necessarily expect to before. One of the great challenges of politics federally is regionalization, right? You have regionally strong areas, you have regionally weak areas. If you want to build out your regionally weak areas, you have to build individually strong constituency associations. That's one of the reasons that the delegated process works so well. Um, It does fail. I mean, there will be tons of areas where you don't get the 14 delegates that you can send uh, because there's just literally not enough people in the constituency association. But that's okay. That you you can start. You have to be starting somewhere Um, just by signing up 678,000 members doesn't necessarily mean that you are stronger. Now, it does mean that you got $15 per 678,000 thousand members. And it does mean that there is a donation value that we can project based on prior performance of members against donations. Maybe it's uh, another, you know, $45 per member that will will happen in the next two years. That's a lot of money. Let's talk about, Carter, you brought up something interesting, the financial component of membership and like the fundraising component. Uh, Corey, what do you think about this? Like, should we detangle those two things? Because often the system is chosen I shouldn't say often, but sometimes it's pretty clear the system is chosen with an eye towards what will net us the most amount of money, whether the membership sales, whether the uh, cash call for the candidates, whether they be small or large. What do you kind of think of the financial component here? Because these are entities that need to keep breathing and and working uh, financially. Talk to me about that. What's your thoughts there? So, no, I disagree. I think that's Hmm. uh, I think that's your your kind of forgetting how expensive a delegated system is. Um, 
uh, and how much money it can pull out of people and how that can be to the advantage of the party. It's not just about those $10 memberships, but like, let's just, let's use that 2006 uh, election as an example. Delegated convention in Montreal. Um, I, they sent, so 14 elected delegates from Calgary Centre, another two that were uh, what we call ex officio, the president and the past candidate, plus there were probably a bunch of party executives that were there, because Calgary Centre being kind of a, you know, an obvious hub. Every single one of those people needs to pay their convention fees, for starters, mm-hmm, that's money. Mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. And, and like, we're talking hundreds of dollars, sometimes pushed into the thousands, yeah. right? That's, just just you know, the that, privilege of showing up. Just for the privilege of showing up. I, of course, have to get a hotel. I have to get a flight. One of the major complaints of a delegated system uh, is it is very disadvantageous for groups who do not have the financial means to get themselves to conventions. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, parties did a lot of things to fundraise and and offset, and there were all sorts of, you know, waivers to try to bring that equity. But one of the main reasons the delegated system died was because it's it, it was seen as fairly elitist. Yeah. Like you've, you've got to have the time and the means to go across the country for four days in the middle of a week quite often and, and go do it. But you're giving the party a pile of your money. And um, and well, the you know, it may seem like even in the conservative example, what they've got six hundred and seventy five thousand, mm-hmm. right? Ten dollars a pop. Is it, I can't remember. Fifteen. What the, I, think, I, think, I think it's ten or fifteen. 15. Yeah. Yeah. So between. So let's just say let's say for easy math that's ten million dollars that they get. They got to run that. There includes mail for all of those six hundred and seventy-five return. You know, return envelopes. All of the things that go involved there. I doubt they make all that much money on it. Uh, certainly, I can tell you from hmm. my own experience running a political party, the membership fees. I mean, from a like a pure nuts and bolts point of view, we barely recoup, yeah. right? You, you just hope they were on the list and then the money of them would become donors and you treated it more as the start of a funnel. And I think when you think about it in a leadership context, that's that's even more so the case because you've got to put on, you know, contests and debates and all of the, the other things that go you with it. You have to rent a helicopter to put behind your, your stage. Exactly. I mean, that or shit's not cheap. Outright purchase it. Outright I'm purchase glad. it, you make so much money. Well, look, those entry fees will probably be worth a lot more than the membership fees yeah. uh, because that's in some ways gravy, uh, even though it's not really supposed to be treated as that. And you can have entry fees in any kind of contest. You don't need to have a one-member vote, one vote that's to a good have point. entry fees. Yeah. Carter, talk to me about some other considerations here. You know, what this kind of, at least for me, brings back is a previous discussion of ours, which is political parties, when it's most opportune – say they're private clubs, when it's least opportune, say that they're more than private clubs and they need public support, public dollars. And when uh, pundits like us or commentators kind of make comments about their system, it's kind of more of a fuck off for a private club, let us do our thing. Um, <laughs> you know, I- I'm kind of trying to reconcile all that with with voting systems. What kind of considerations are you kind of giving now? Like if you- your system, your favorite system is kind of falling out of favor, it seems like, Carter. Isn't yeah. that fair? Oh, totally. Like, uh, and and so so where are you leaning towards these days? Like what are what is what are you pushing towards? What are you kind of thinking, knowing that to Corey's criticism of the delegated model as being elitist and, and perhaps inaccessible? What what else are you thinking about these days? I'm thinking about what we learned during COVID. I think we learned a tremendous amount about technology and, and how to bring people together using technology. Um, you know, Corey's absolutely right. I mean, I, I know that for me, early in my political career, the idea of going to a delegated convention was just off the table. I, I couldn't afford to go to it. A, a political, ca- you know, spend uh, 
spend two thousand dollars going to to Toronto because mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. like these things yeah. aren't held in small areas with you know lots of hotels that are super duper cheap. Oh, They're no. held. I remember Corey and I went to Montreal, and that was a. Uh... That was an oh, expensive yeah. trip. It was like a vacation. You had to be like, okay, I'm budgeting like 2,500 bucks to yeah, do this. Yeah, this thing. is going to be a big, big number. And, yeah. uh, you know, I remember, you know, lots of people sleeping, you know, piling in eight people in a room and, uh, you know, especially the the youth delegates would, would do crazy things uh, to make it more affordable for themselves. Um, but I think you can use things like, t- like the technology. I mean, keep in mind that a point system is essentially a delegated process without the people. What if you assembled the, what if you created the point system with the people? How do you, how can you involve and build your CAs? Like there may be some sort of a high hybrid model where you can, you can build your CAs, select your delegates and still, and not necessarily fly everybody to, you know, into, uh, into these, you know, the middle of whatever, um, to actually have the process, the vote could be held remotely. We're, we're, we're learning these types of things with how you can build stuff using our new technologies. Um, you know, 1976's leadership didn't have the ability to, to go live to various, like you could have provincial gathering points, uh, one in the lower mainland, one in Red Deer, cause it always needs to be in Red Deer, uh, one in Regina, one in, you know, Winnipeg th- that could really change the cost structure. Uh, and open up the the way that that you do these these types of events. It would change the way that uh, individuals certainly felt the cost. I mean, the parties would have to bear it themselves. I'm just not sure that this idea that it's more democratic to have one member one vote should survive. I think that we need to stop stop having that discussion and start actually having a discussion about what serves the party best. And what serves the party best, I think, ultimately is electability. And the good news is that the more electable the party, the party's pro, like if you choose the best process that's going to create the most electable government, you're also choosing the process that reflects the majority of Canadians' points of view. And right now we are, we have chosen processes that are selecting, that are, that are using the minority's point of view, right? Pierre Polyev is able to, to micro-target um, minority points of view to find a way to get him elected. Danielle Smith is mirroring the exact same thing. Donald Trump took his minority view and turned it into the majority view in the, in, in the U.S. That was fucking toxic, right? That was toxic. It was racist. It was misogynistic. And he was able to grab that and say, look, it's okay. And now I'm elected. So it's all going to be fine. And it wasn't fine. It isn't fine. So refining our processes so that we don't fall into that pattern is kind of where, where my thinking goes these days. And I think that that puts us kind of on the same plane as some of the you know, people are looking at proportion of representation. They're saying, well, let's find, let's find a, new rep- a new model that will eliminate some of these ills. Yeah, let's find a new model that will eliminate some of these ills, but let's not create new ills at the exact same time. Corey, is is a one member one vote in particular? Are, are, you know, do we slag on it because of recent examples, or in because the yeah. top line sort of assumption by many is that this is the most democratic? Why not? Right? Make it make it remote, make it by mail, make it pretty easy to vote. Uh, anyone can kind of jump in a reasonable membership cutoff so that you can join after the rules are are, are sort of in place, which, by the way, is not the case. An example from the UK, right? Yeah. Like we were just discussing this prior to the show. You had to be a member for three months of the UK Conservative Party uh, to get voting to rights, get voting rights. Party. Exactly. Yeah. Versus if you bought a UCP membership, 
um, before August 12th, you're able to vote just as fairly as someone who's been a UCP member since the founding of that party. So this one member, one vote unfairly slagged because of recent examples, or do you feel like it's it's now exposing what the system actually is and, and, and which is, uh, you know, ready to be exploited, so to speak? Well, look, I think, um, yes, it is being slagged because of recency bias. There's no doubt in my mind, if we were living in a world of entirely delegated conventions, we would probably be a lot more critical of that. We would remember things like, you know, how expensive they are. And we would have such recent examples of people unable to go from disadvantaged groups, lower income groups. Uh, I can tell you the Liberal Party of Canada was always, it was always one of those things where uh, you kind of wince at how low that, you know, you'd have elected delegates, yep. uh, you know, a certain percent for indigenous populations. And then like the conversion to actually showing up at the convention was very poor, right? And a lot of it had to do with the cost. So I think, um, you know, it's easy to forget those problems. This is all, this is sort of what I was saying at the start. Like we oscillate between these systems because we take for granted their strengths and we can only see their weaknesses at a certain point. And we take for granted, I think, the strengths of one member, one vote. It's exactly what you talked about, the convenience for people, mm -hmm. the, the kind of the egalitarian nature, the ability that you can sit there. But as soon as you set a system, that system is going to be gamed. And often that it will be gamed in a way that, man, you know, makes those ills seem really, really ill. And uh, and what we see right now with one member, one vote is uh, like just a full throated embrace of what's the most likely to well, we talked about this a few days ago on the six nines episode. Right. But what the, what's most likely to um, to get you um, to act? Well, we know from a history of like fundraising that it's the most extreme messaging. It's the most aggressive messaging. And so, you know, leadership candidates are seeing that and they're seizing the opportunity and and. You know, you can drum people up on all sorts of crazy shit. And, and that's exactly what people are doing right now. Now, does that mean we need to bail on one member, one vote? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, maybe we have one member, many different versions of votes we're talking about. Maybe you have for continued membership. Like if you've, if you've been a member for one year, you get one vote, two years, two votes, like almost a point system out that rewards long service in a party. Maybe we just look at a way that it's moderated in other ways. Like we, we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but that also remains true of the delegated convention. There were probably ways we could fix the delegated convention, uh, you know, including having some of those fees go back into deeper subsidies for people. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess what I would say is absolutely we are more critical of this system because it's now the system we have to deal with. But uh, that's also not a defense of the system. Carter, I want to talk about, uh, you know, I use the word exploit, Corey uses the word gamed. Um, take, take me back to your experience. Tell me, has there been a time where you've actually told a candidate to either run because of the system you saw or sit on the sidelines because of the system? You're like, your strengths don't work here. Like, because we've talked about this, right? Certain candidates have certain systems that favor them. And then you add on top of that, the exploitation and the gamification. So talk to me about your experiences here. Have you like encouraged a candidate to run because you're like, I can make shit happen for you in this system? Or you've told a candidate to sit on the sidelines because like, hey, it's fucking not your game here, man. Like if you were advising Jean Trey as you did for 15 minutes, uh, which I suspect is what you told him uh, before you came back to the pod. So tell me about your experiences here around exploitation, gamification, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the exploitation <clears throat> is super easy to do in this one member, one vote points structure. So CPC liberals um, and uh, the CPC liberals and 
uh, BC Liberals all have a point structure that they overlay on top of the 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 one member one vote structure right so you by putting the points in there now some memberships are worth more than other memberships so you you've now said you know um in surrey for example uh they buy a ton of memberships there's eight ridings tremendous participation uh in those eight ridings those memberships become very very watered down um you know you'll have a thousand members in one riding uh putting out a hundred votes Northern British Columbia, you'll have 150 members. So 150 members going to one, you know, 100 points, uh, 1.5 to, you know, 0.01. Uh, if you're using that. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a much easier model to create an outcome when you actually have the point system. You can then say, well, can we be strong? So if I was advising Jean Charest, I would say to Charest, you should run because you've got points overlay. And because you've got points overlay, you can now do better in Toronto. You can now do better in um, in uh, Quebec. You can do better in Atlantic Canada. Each of those areas, Atlantic Canada and Quebec alone, have ten thousand points, right? So it, when there's only three hundred, you know, thirty-four thousand points, and you can do ten thousand out of Quebec and Atlantic Canada, you're in the game, and that mm. point structure shifts things around with Redford. Because we were doing the instant runoff, the instant runoff can now be gamed, right? So the instant runoff. How so, did you game that? Tell me. So tell, tell us how you game. Basically, because um, the 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 conservative rule, the progressive conservatives in Alberta used to have this model where they would cut down to the top three candidates, and the cut down to the top three candidates was super based on what? Just just to be clear, based on what? Just one so member, on one vote. One member, one vote up to the top three. And then one and then member, there was one a couple of weeks, and then another. Round. Yeah, and then one member, one vote with an instant runoff for second choices. A couple of weeks later, so Two it wasn't later. the caucus. To be clear, that selected the top three. No, right? that was still campaigned with the with the membership to get the top three. So all you need to do is get to the top three, right? Your your entire race becomes: Can I get you to the top three? And this ultimately wasn't that much different than when the Nenshi in in two thousand ten. Can you be in the top three at a certain point? Because that point is actually the top is when the real election begins and the real election, because also the, the progressive conservatives at that time enabled membership sales up to the vote. You could walk into the voting station and yeah, buy, a buy membership, your membership there. Right. Which is a total. You know, Sorry, do you mean that the second vote or the first one? Second vote. That's yeah, the thing. I either. forgot so, about that. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so in, in Redford's case, I mean, we're going in. We know that basically we know that um, Gary Marr is polarizing. You either voted for Gary Marr on the first ballot or you're never going to vote for Gary Marr, right? The same thing that happened to Jim Dinning, the same thing that happened to uh, Nancy Betkowski. Um, you know, like the, the, the model is in, this, in these instant runoffs, if you don't choose the winner the first time, your odds of you choosing the winner the second on your second challenge or the leader is very, very minimal. So we have a a built-in advantage when you're coming in second or third. So Allison was not going to run. She said, you know, on February 14th, 2011, I was sitting in the lobby of her office and she was talking to Hawks and she said, I'm out. I'm out. I went into her office and I explained to her how this, this system enabled us to actually win. At the very least, we were going to be the kingmaker. We were going to be the ones who chose the premier, which would elevate her status in the caucus from justice minister somewhere down the, the level of, of hierarchy, 
you know, in terms of the friends of the premier to, you know, friend of premier, highly capable cabinet minister. So your, your best out, your worst out, your best outcome is I'm going to be, you're going to be the premier. Your worst outcome is you're going to be a highly, highly influential cabinet minister. So that changed her mind and actually, you know, allowed her to continue, continue in the race. And, uh, we made, you know, we were able to take advantage of that. Now, in another situation, my work with Mike DeYoung and my partnership with with uh, Katie Merrifield from the Andrew Wilkinson campaign, we were able to take candidates that were in, um, you know, fourth and sixth and turn that into an actual victory because of the point system and the the laddering up of the instant runoff. Because we were able to elevate, because it was all very, very close. The everybody got quite, quite the same number of points, and laddering up became uh, relatively straightforward because the system dictated a particular outcome, right? So when when one of the you know, people are like, well. There is no way that a system dictates a, an outcome. Well, yeah, there is. When you do a proportional representation race, you are inviting more extreme types of parties into your into your system. That's just the way that it works because you're rewarding the 5% ideas. You reward 5%ers and you discount or you don't reward as much uh, the 35ers. Right. The 35 percenters are handicapped in your proportional representation. The same thing happens back to uh, in this particular situation where you've got, you know, uh, a, an instant runoff or a point situation. Both of those systems, super easy to manipulate if you have the right structures and strategies. Corey, talk to me about like, first, I've got two questions for you. When you were watching Carter do the Redford thing, you were also, if I'm not mistaken, executive director of the Liberals at that same time. I was, yeah. Were you watching that shit show and what were you thinking? That's my first question. And then secondly, I want to go back to caucus only because I want to dig deeper on that before we, we, we round this out. Uh, so I, <laughs> we all thought that Gary, Gary Marr was going to win, right? At least going into this, you know, there was some doubt seeping in as we got a little bit closer to the thing, but he was the presumptive. Mm -hmm. And the Liberals had just elected a new leader in September, on September 12th of that year. And your election, I think, was in October, yeah. right, Stephen? Um, and so there was this, you know, the, the, the personal anecdote is I was asked to stay on to run the campaign, and I thought, I'll do it because it's going to be next month. And then it ended up being in the fucking spring. So I had to stick around for longer than I'd kind of wished for. But the, um, you know, the thing that was interesting there was that that whole, like, let's just grab everybody and, and let's stop Gary Marr and the antipathy towards Gary Marr. That's not like that was just a conversation happening in the conservatives. It really bled into the liberals. I was at a dinner party the night that that was all announced on the second ballot. Yeah. And I, I remember I was texting you, Stephen, just sort of you were giving me kind of inside scoops and whatnot. But um, I was in a dinner party of liberals, like liberal organizers for the Alberta Liberal Party. And they were elated that Alison Redford had won. And I thought, well, we're well and truly fucked yeah. here, you know, and it, that was borne out in the polls. Like almost overnight, the liberals dropped half their support yeah. to Allison. Because right? Allison was, it was Yeah, It was an absolute disaster. It went from the low 20s for the liberals uh, to like 11 overnight, overnight. Uh, and so, you know, the we, we treat these party contests like they're vacuums, but they can have such a significant effect, especially if they're contests of the nature of what Stephen has said, where – where anybody can get off the off the benches. And so, you know, like there are some benefits to a system like that. Like that system made liberals feel like they could just be five minute Tories and get invested and that support went to the, mm -hmm. the, the Tories. And, you know, Stephen Carter would not have won the 2012 election without people like that going oh, very sure. aggressively. Yeah. 
towards the the PCs. So, you know, it's it's very interesting as, as we sort of tease out all of these systems here. Corey, talk to me about the caucus only system. I, I want to round out our, our episode on this, which is perhaps on the surface, the most restrictive, the most, you know, the least democratic, how, how what? No one gets yeah. to vote. These people, they just select, like, what the hell? Talk to me about that system. Like, have you, how are you analyzing? How are you viewing it? You've given a bit of your remarks on it, but I want to loop back to it a bit. Well, I two like let's talk about the positives of it. First, it, it most aligns with what our system of government actually is. Which is a representative right? democracy. And so it creates a certain stability. I mean, one of the big challenges with all of the systems except the caucus only system is and Stephen can speak to this too. Like quite often you're elected by the members and deposed by the caucus. We have this real disconnect where uh, you're being elected by one group and you're asked to oversee another group who don't actually need to listen to you. You know, there there is the ability to walk away and, 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 you know, there there are certain And to be clear about party... that, this is what Carter was mentioning earlier, where the Smith example, she could be the leader, but the caucus can say fuck off sort of thing. Well, I was actually thinking more specifically about uh, how Alison Redford lost her leadership. Because of lack of caucus yeah. support, you mean? Yeah. 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 So, you know, there is an argument to be made that you create much more stable governments if you have caucus support. Now, we were just talking about the UK Conservatives, which require a heavy amount of caucus support. Yes. Doesn't seem to fucking matter. They seem to be, you know, like as unstable as, as like the, the most cliche of pizza parliaments right now. But that's uh, that's neither here nor there. The other thing about the caucus party or like the caucus – so like with the other positive, I guess, before I get to like the glaring negatives, the other positive is um, with the caucus system is that – it empowers the individual MP. It makes that job actually relevant. And in some ways, that might be more democratic because you're creating a system where you're not just electing a party, but the individual on the ballot matters more. They're not just expected to jump at to what the leader says because they get to pick the leader and that gives them certain authority. And by empowering, I mean, this is basically Michael Chong's thesis, yeah. right? You empower mm-hmm. the individual MPs, you strengthen Canadian democracy because the centralization that comes from these party systems, these party-driven leadership systems, is not healthy for democracy. I mean, in a funny way, we all just vote for a dictator every year. We just choose our dictator. You know, we know how little the individual MP actually has an effect on on these things. So, you know, that's the that's the positive, right? Like you could perhaps strengthen democracy uh, in a more general sense with a system like that. Now, that is one version of it. The downside, of course, especially in a country like Canada. What do you do if you've got a caucus? Let's say you've got the PC caucus of 1993 of two. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, Mm -hmm. they did go with one of them. So let's broaden it. Let's say it's the Reform Party caucus. Reform Party. All you have is Western Canadians. You're going to elect a leader, and that leader is not going to have any kind of endorsement or support from Atlanta, Canada, from Quebec, a couple of MPs from Ontario. That's a recipe for a disaster in a country this big. So, you know, you've got to think about how you bring in those regional differences if you're going to have – like a, a caucus system might work in a country that is a little more unitary. Mm. You know, I don't even think it works necessarily in the UK. Obviously, they've moved away from a pure caucus system because they've got, you know, England and Scotland and Wales and, you know, Northern Ireland. But it's a real problem in a country like Canada. Carter, round us out with your final thoughts here. We, You know, I think a mission accomplished for us. I mean, we clearly have chosen the best system. Uh, it's It's simple. It is clear. Uh, we now know it. it? Yeah, we've we've explained it to people. No, Carter, we, this is about adding nuance to the conversation. I think we've done that, which is uh, which is helpful. But give me your final thoughts here. Round us out. 
Well, I just think, you know, Corey was Corey's really showing the problem with all the systems. When you're trying to choose one leader and, and for a party, we are choosing one person that is going to be uh, that should be a compromise in some fashion to ensure that you can you can have that representation across the country or across the ideologies that you're trying to assemble together. We use these words like conservative, liberal, new Democrat, as though everyone who's a new Democrat understands exactly what that is. But there are so many different types of new Democrats. You know, we've talked before about the the John Horgan new Democrats and how that's different than the the Jagmeet Singh new Democrats or how that the, the new Democrats under Jack Layton look different than they are now or Ed Broadbent. I mean, because the leadership defines the party as much as the parties define, you know, chooses the leader, you, you know, yeah. be, you, you're going to try and find someone who compromises that gives you the best opportunity for electoral success. And I think the ultimate con- concern that we bring to this is that the one member, one vote, the most, the most, quote unquote, most democratic, democratic may create some unintended consequences when you're running a small system. And that unintended consequence is that uh, the, you lose some of that capacity to appeal to, to the broader sp- segment. When Danielle Smith and Pierre Polyev become the standard bearers of conservatism in Canada and, the, and in Alberta, then you are going to have uh, a smaller conservative impact, one imagines. Or we fear that if it stays the large conservative impact, that we're going to be following in the steps of Donald Trump and uh, post-truth uh, post-truth politics. So that is, that's kind of the concern. You know, why do we bring this up? Why do we talk about it? It's not because, you know, these things are just actually happening and everything's going to be okay. It's because these things are happening and it may, we may create perverse outcomes and we need to be aware of that uh, and make shifts within our parties uh, to try and uh, change it in the long run. Corey, final thoughts here. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I I agree to an extent with what Stephen said there. Um, maybe not as aggressively on his endpoints about where Canada might be heading. I, I guess the point is, these systems are all means to an end, right? And I think we spend much too much time thinking about the means and much too little thinking about the end. Mm. And political parties would do a better job of saying, what are we trying to accomplish with this? Having that conversation outside of the heat of a leadership contest, setting some clear boundaries and some guidelines that are not about the moment but about, in general, the principles that they want to bring forward. You know, what, what does it mean to be democratic to that party? What does it mean to be electable to that party? What does it mean to engage your activists? And how important are these things? And how much weight do we put to all of them as we're building out this system? Um, what I fear right now is that we have a bunch of opportunists who are wrapping themselves in some very extreme language about the virtues of these systems when really they just want to get elected. It just comes down to that. And parties need to have more care over their uh, over their systems and not just wait until all of a sudden it's vacant to start arm wrestling over who gets what. Nicely done. Good job, guys. That was a, a great segment on leadership, how we vote, the voting systems. Of course, that was brought to us by our sponsor, Flair Airlines. No, Flair Airlines, sponsor, but neither yeah. a means nor an end. Uh, okay, let's move it on to our final segment, our final segment, the over, under, and the lightning round. Carter, you know, we do this for you. Even the special episodes, we do it for you. Thank you. Um, and of course, we've been talking about how leaders get elected. Uh, so, of course, Carter, I just want to I, I just want to ask you this very simple question. Um, your thought, knowing how it works in the Republican primary for president, late honest Carter, the 2016 GOP Dominee, who's it going to be? Jeb Bush. 
Thank you, Carter. That's all the time we have. We're going to leave it there. That's a special episode of The Strategist. My name is Zane Belger. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter, and we'll see you next time.